Resolute Square. There was also maintained what was called an enemy's list, which was rather extensive and continually being updated. Democrats want Republicans dead. Where I could stand in the middle of Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody and I wouldn't lose any voters, okay? The women with the least likelihood of getting pregnant are the ones most worried about having abortions. On January 6th of 2021, you had tens of thousands of people peacefully protesting. No, it's not a right-wing conspiracy theory. It's not QAnon. It's real. (laughs) I'm Rick Wilson, and this is The Enemies List. My guest today on The Enemies List is the great Tom Nichols, author, speaker, uh, staff writer at The Atlantic, part of the amazing The Daily with The Atlantic, the author of The Death of Expertise, uh, which will be coming out with a revised edition, I believe, in February of this year, and it is well, well, well worth a read. Tom Nichols, thank you so much for joining me on The Enemies List today. It's good to be with you, Rick. You know, before we started the show, we were talking about like the the dysfunctional children that seem to run all of our technological infrastructure in this world. And it just sort of reminded me that we face an economy, a politics, and a culture right now that is essentially run by the most juvenile parts of the human id in almost every way. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing that I always find so amazing that, you know, you you watch these guys, you watch Elon Musk, you know, now the world's most richest and, and most well-known shit poster. Right. You know, you, you, have to remi- you have to make the effort to remind yourself, say, this guy is in his 50s. Yeah. You know, this guy is like a middle-aged man. Being a billionaire somehow um, causes you to regress until you're, you know, sort of this <clears throat> shirty, tantrumy nine-year-old. And and it's true for so many of them. I mean, there are some honorable exceptions. I mean, I'm, um, I think looking at Marty Barron's book about Bezos, for example, you know, it's kind of, all right, so he's got a lot of money and, you know, like rich guys often do, he's got, he can be an idea hamster. But when I worked for the military, we always had, there was always some admiral who was an idea oh, hamster, yes. right? Hey, I've been thinking, you know. Don't think it hurts the um, team. Yeah, you know, it's like, hey, has anyone thought of this? Oh, shit. But, you know, he seems like a functional adult who has pretty normal ideas, but the, but so many of them. And, you know, of course, the the boss of them all, the 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 apex Arrested development adolescent of all of them is Donald Trump, who you every now and then you say, this guy's 77 years old. It's almost impossible to reconcile that with like a grandfather. How is it that his midlife crisis has lasted since he was 27 years old? I don't understand it. His midlife crisis has been going for 50 fucking years and we're all the victims of it. So I want to talk a little bit about something you've been speaking about. It's been, and I, I wrote about it a little bit today. There is this rising and ugly anti-Semitism in American academia right now. And if you mention it online, the response from sort of what I call the pro-Hamas demo, it is as intense as the weird MAGAs when they when you mention the orange god in a, in a, in a disparaging way. What do you see the arc of that being right now? Because I think it is an incredibly dangerous movement. We've got you know Jews being told, don't go to certain neighborhoods now in New York. Jewish kids being told, you have to sneak out the back door in the library while they've trapped you in here. I'm worried about it, and I feel like a lot of it is in academia, and and I was hoping to get your thoughts on that. Well, a lot of bad things are all centered in academia because it's a very protected environment where there are usually no consequences for anything. 
But I think there are two or three separate problems that overlap, but that some of them are part are, are endemic to the academy, but some of them are just kind of part of a broader social problem that we're all facing. Within the academy, there is, and, and again, as you say, this is kind of the polar, you know, the kind of photo negative of MAGA. Both of them are countercultural movements that there's always been a sense, and I've spent, for people that don't, don't know me or that I, I haven't blathered at enough on enough podcasts, I was a professor for 35 years. I taught at, um, for several years at Dartmouth. I've taught at Georgetown. I spent most of my career as a military academic at the Naval War College, but I taught summers and nights at Harvard. And, you know, I just basically have been in the teaching game since the late 80s. And there is a feeling on campuses that whatever everybody else thinks is right must be wrong because they're the great unwashed and we are the enlightened and educated. We are the people who spend our times with, we live the life of the mind as the one former president of Dartmouth put it. We live the life of the mind. We are people of books and ideas. And of course, the problem with books and ideas is, you know, that's not the real world. But also, it leads you to reject that whatever everybody else thinks is awesome must be stupid, mm-hmm. you know, because they're common people. So if everybody's basically saying Israel's democracy and we have to side with Israel, it's like, well, you, I can't be that guy. Right. I can't be that guy. I mean, go back to the 80s, right, when you and I were young cold warriors, right? It's like, well, I'm on the side of the, you know, I stand with this. I was, in fact, I was thinking of this the other day. I was listening to Bruce Coburn's album, Stealing Fire, this Canadian lefty. Remember Stealing Fire with his boats in Nicaragua Absolutely. and Sandinistas? Right. And, you know, I listened to it. Now. I mean, it's really, I will tell people, and, you know, it's a great album, has some great songs on it, but these cringy lyrics about, you know, how the, the Nicaraguans are the best of us and all that stuff. Well, you know, college campuses were full of that crap. Because, oh, yeah. you know, most people had, you know, were supporting Ronald Reagan, especially by after the 84 election. So whatever Reagan was in favor of, you had to hate. So there is that kind of reflexive countercultural thing going on in universities. It's been there since the 60s. It's not going away. The viciousness of this particular movement, though, I think is really, you know, just kind of picking the scab off of a latent anti-Semitism that's always been there in American cultural life. In the academy, it intersects with kind of trendiness and, again, with people who feel that they, you know, that there is no human consequence. And I don't mean like being hurt. I mean just not running into normal people who will shun you because, again, universities and I've, you know, that I've spoken in defense of the academy and experts and, you know, but many of them are closed epistemic communities, right? That they are just a bubble of people who talk to people who totally agree with them. And the third thing I I want to talk about, though, is a bigger problem in American life, which is the search for meaning, which is that everybody, we we all have main character syndrome now. And we all have to be part of some grand, we're, we're, we are just flooded with this epidemic of narcissism. I wrote about this in, in my other latest book, Our Own Worst Enemy. We're flooded with this narcissism mm-hmm. that tells us that we have to be at the center of important things. We have to be crusaders in some important cause. We have to be the people who bravely rip down posters of kidnapped people because we, privileged children that we are, must stand with the oppressed. 
Um, we don't know any of the, the oppressed. We've never met them. We don't want them in our living rooms, but we stand with them. And that gives my life meaning. And that is a, I won't say bipartisan, it is a pan-partisan experience in a modern age where people live well, have high living standards, have no real sense of threat from anything. You know, there's no Cold War. There's no, I mean, they just live, you know, these very cosseted, entitled lives. Life is good. Life is good. And so, you know, what do I do to alleviate this sense of meaninglessness? I choose a cause and then I go at it hammer and tongs in a cult-like way. Just as with the generation of the 60s, one day some of these kids, particularly on the campuses, you know, they're going to be 40, 45 years old. Somebody's going to show them a video of this and they're going to say, you know, when they're corporate lawyers, say, well, yeah, you know, but I felt strongly and I was searching for life. I, I was very emotional in my Facebook group or my, or, or I saw a TikTok that made me do this. I spent a lot of years in the Gelman Library at GW, um, and I, and which which has a absolutely tremendous collection uh, of books about the Holocaust and Nazi Germany and German war crimes. And my focus area was Russia, but I certainly read a lot of it. And the fact that these people are projecting glory to our martyrs regarding Hamas on the side of the library at, at, an, at a very elite, expensive institution. I guarantee you the kids that were doing that are not – their parents aren't blinking at the $75,000 a year that GW costs. Their lives are perfectly comfortable. They've never been oppressed a millisecond in their lives. Our martyrs. Yeah. Your, 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 your martyrs? From like Cherry Hill, New Jersey? What? What Did they did they die in the battle of Whole Foods or something? Get the fuck out of here. Exactly. I mean, it, it really is shocking that to see that sort of – I mean, the, the cliche of the 60s was that it was not – the, the hippie movement was, you know, kids who could afford it in a lot of places. And the cliche of the of, of this era is kids who can afford to have their parents buy them a, a building at the school to get in that are that are doing this. I, you know, I don't agree with Ezekiel Emanuel on a lot of things, but he wrote a very good piece in the Times over the weekend called Hamas and the, the Moral Failure of Higher Ed or something like that. It was, you know, what you pointed out is it is partly because of that bubble, that isolation, that imaginary world they live in that they can do these kind of things. But I also think people who live a life of privilege desperately feel the need to be associated with someone who's oppressed as a way of kind of, I mean, it's, you know, we, and back in the day, we called it liberal guilt. We called it, you know, what, and I don't think it's even liberal guilt. I think it's just this, um, you know, as you were talking, I was thinking of a movie I'm sure we've both seen and, and loved, which was Repo Man. Oh, yes. Where the kid says, I blame society. And the other kid's like, no, you're a suburban, you're just a white suburban punk, just like me. Um, you know, and I thought, you know, the more things change, right? I mean, it is, it is this sense of, Hey, I'm not just some kid from, you know, the tri-state area majoring in finance. I am an important, you know, part of an important movement for oppressed people. It continues to sort of surprise me just how, for the first time in a long time, the backlash that was hitting institutions like Harvard, um, from donors and NYU, where a lot of, a lot of the major donors have finally said, okay, that's enough of this. We're not going to play this game anymore, and we'll see. We'll see if the if the great conflict between academia and development in these colleges <laughs> ends up with some sort of moderation of these things. You know what? I, when I noticed, um, I spent about ten years teaching 
at an Ivy League school and, you know, living in and around those kinds of communities. And the kids are, most of the kids, because we've been beating up on some of these kids pretty hard. Most of the kids are a lot more sensible than the professors and the administrators. Truth. You know, that most of them are like, yeah, I know my professor. I never forgot the student I had years ago who was having trouble with a history professor. And she was one of the smartest advisees I had. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And and then she started getting really good grades. And I said, hey, what? You know, you must be studying hard. She said, no, I just figured that on every exam, if you say something terrible about Reagan, you do great. (laughs) And she broke in the code and it was fine. And, you know, never get like she was in no danger of being, you know, becoming a member of the international socialist, you know, movement or all that. Right. But I think the universities, and, and there was a good piece on this recently about how the universities have for years felt the need to have a, like a corporate stand on things. Right. So of course this is going to bite them in the ass. The same way it's corporations are learning the hard way that, Hey, you know, the guys who make macaroni and cheese, we don't need to know what you think about Gaza. Your automobile manufacturing facility uh, does not require a stance on trans issues. Pick your poison of the day, left or right. I need to know how long to cook the pasta, not what you think about abortion. I've been following the the ascension of Mike Johnson really closely, and I'm sort of fascinated by how he represents a the first post-Trump leader in a, in a major legislative body in the, in the U.S. I was thinking about you when I was reading about this guy. He is so like, he's got a narrow gauge thing and distrusts anybody who isn't from his particular strain of evangelical hotness. Um, what do you think, how do you think it's going to work out in a body that is still closely divided and a country that has needs that go well beyond sort of the uh, checklist of the MAGA and evangelical coalition? Boy, that is a great question because, um, as you heard, you said Mike Johnson, and I came out with that sideshow Bob Shutter. You know, <laughs> <laughs> one of the things that I find striking is what you just said. It's not that he's a Christian; he's a particular. Fl- I'm a Christian, but I'm Greek Orthodox. I'm sure that in Johnson's world, I'm from some. I'm from beyond the outer rings of the solar system. Like, you're right that this is the old, um, I, I was thinking of that emo Phillips joke that ends, it's a long setup for the joke, but the it, it's like, oh, we find how much we have in common and we find that we're both Lutheran. Oh, Missouri Synod. I said, die, heretic, and I pushed him off the building. Um, <laughs> it's a great joke. It's a, it's right. a classic emo yes. Phillips bit. It's not just Christianity. It's this super narrow you know, and I'm, that's great if you come from a cherry red district in Louisiana. I don't know how you govern, you know, the House of Representatives when your ideological aperture is measured in nanometers. And of course, now that he's speaker, a lot of this stuff is coming out. Hey, you know, I'm against gay sex because it can't be within marriage because all sex has to be within marriage. Oh, well, that is a fascinating mm-hmm. 1951, you know, position that no one could possibly run on, including most of your colleagues. I can think of about 500 districts where that doesn't work. Right. There are only 435, but another (laughs) 70 would join in twice just to say, what the fuck? You know, and everybody keeps talking about how nice he is. Well, okay. You know, this this has been always, you and I have wrestled with this for years about the, the problem of yeah, I have a neighbor. He's nice to his dog. He loves his kids. He keeps his yard neat. He always waves. He's very pleasant. And he has these ghastly, racist, retrograde, horrible politics. Right. You know, these kind of smiling authoritarians. Um, so in that sense, he, he I, I find him scary. But I also think 
his first crisis, they've all papered it over for now. It's like, right. no, no, we're all, mm-hmm. we're, none of us are mad at each other anymore. Right. We all hate each other. Um, and this is whether Johnson, I mean, he has no experience in this. He's never been a major player. He's never, you know, run any seriously, as to my knowledge, you would know better, but I, I don't think he's ever run a major committee. I mean, the guy renamed a post office, basically. He's, he's, he's one of that interesting category of Republican members. Jim Jordan's another one who takes a point of pride in not passing things. He doesn't care about helping his district or, or, or leading to develop legislation. He believes that you've got, that, that he is better for objecting to things than for being constructive on anything. You know, as former Republicans, we, you and I always get tagged about this with, well, you guys are the ones that said government should never work. No, we said government shouldn't be immense and when it right. works, it should work efficiently. Correct. And Smaller, smarter, a better. Limited <laughs> number of things and it should do them well. And that has morphed into the the luxury that guys like Jordan and Johnson have mm-hmm. of saying, well, screw government. It shouldn't do anything because they know, they know, and their constituents don't, that other people will keep the, the trains running and the Correct. lights on and the clean Correct. water coming out of their faucets. I think one of the great tragedies of the 21st century is that the average American has because we have such a high standard of living, because things just work, the average American has no sense of how much it takes for everything around them to happen every day. They draw no connection with government at all in any of that. The ironic thing about all these, what I call unlimited government conservatives now, they they stick with the old rhetoric, oh, I want government out of their, your business, but they don't. They really want the state, the power of the state. I mean, Ron DeSantis being like the alpha child of that of that movement, they want to punish companies that don't agree with them on things that have nothing to do with the company's business. They want to punish uh, companies and individuals who say things that they find politically uncomfortable or offensive. And so – and they're willing to use the power of the state to go after people who disagree with them politically. I mean, it is the, it's, it's anathema to traditional conservatism in every way. They're the old left. Yeah. They, they kind of are like the Stalinist old left. Like I think it will eventually end up with, I, I mean, I described Matt Gates the other day as Robespierre because he is you know, this, this guy who loves being the arsonist. He loves being the guy who makes the judgments. Eventually the revolution comes for you too, brother. You know, eventually the revolution, you know, eats its own, I mean, I think that's a really important point because, you know, I'm, uh, this question of, you know, where, what are the, what are the roots of all of this? This notion of using the coercive power of the state, everything except national defense, roads, infrastructure, right. <laughs> for all, for all these other issues mm-hmm. is so anathema to everything conservatives ever were that, you know, to, to the kind of notion of limited government. And instead you have conservatives who really, I mean, I think that's part of the, you know, this is, you live long enough to see yourself become the villain, right? <laughs> that's, that now, you know, they have adopted the positions of the 1960s left, which is we must capture the institutions in order to destroy and reform them. You could take speeches from students in 1968 and stick them on, well, like when it comes to college, you could stick them on DeSantis and Chris Rufo, and you wouldn't be able to tell the difference. Not at all. Correct. Watching them march through the institutions in Florida in particular a close friend of mine is a very significant booster to one of the universities, like a seven plus figure guy. 
And he said to me today, he goes, he goes, they're going to F this all up. He goes, whether you love or hate Jeb Bush, 25 years ago, he said, we're going to improve Florida's universities. They're going to become the best in the country. And they were on the way to doing that is for like all these well-rated public universities. Now there's this sense of like the brain drain is happening. The, the student drain is happening. The athletic drain is happening. And that's what, that's what a lot of these football schools really care about. Because why would you come here if you're a young African-American athlete now? You're in an environment where they ban books about Rosa Parks. Get the fuck out of here. But again, it's, this shows you how the, how the American right has become, it has taken the place of, uh, of the new counterculturalists. And in this, they are, to come back to our original point, they are a lot like the kids chanting for Hamas. They are, you know, this is a kind of trendy counterculturalism. But I also think, and, and this is another kind of interesting place, because when you brought up DeSantis in Florida, I was thinking of this, that there is this nagging resentment that these guys have that they that they feel that they've been denied their rightful place as elites right you know that they're gonna Mm -hmm. you know they're gonna destroy these universities you know because you know even though DeSantis goes to Harvard and like or JD Vance right they they go to these very elite schools Mm -hmm. but they never feel somehow like they were part of them or accepted by them Bannon same thing you know, these are all guys. It's not that they're trying to burn down the institutions. It's that they're crapping on these institutions because they feel rejected by them. This is there's a very personal kind of psychodrama that seems to play out with these guys. You you talked about this before uh, about they hate the elites because they desperately desperately want to be them. They hate celebrities because they don't have their own and they desperately want their own celebrities. They hate you know the popular culture because it reduces their 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 values or whatever, but they desperately want a popular culture. They hate the pop popular culture because the best they could muster out of it was not a TV show, but a podcast. They hate the mainstream media because they aren't working in it. You know, like, it's like, you know, those, those bastards at the Washington post, you know, who never hired me. Yes. Correct. You know, um, I mean, there is just a very, it's a very kind of, blunted ambition hatred and the problem is that kids just try, who just want to go to a good public school in florida are paying the price for all the, these ego wars and frustrations that are happening with people who are just as elitist as the people they criticize it, it's remarkable to watch the 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 preening and the intellectual vanity of new right folks that are in that space i mean look when you read the people like michael anton and kevin slack and even even Mark Andreessen's little screed the other day about techno optimism. Oh my god! Every time I read that shit, I'm like, "Did you motherfuckers not get laid in college? Are, <laughs> this, is, this is this is like freshman dorm room first year philosophy majors shooting the shit, out, you know, with after too much weed. It just it's just like it's painful. It's funny that you say that. It was exa- I read that 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 um, Andreessen thing and I thought, wow, you know, I, I mean, this is the paper that gets turned into me late after the, the guy was up at 3 a.m. ripping bong hits with his roommates and saying, dudes, I have to write this thing about technology. Come on, give me some, you know, and then it's like, it all gets, you know, splattered through the word processor and the guy drags himself in at 9 a.m. and says, uh, so, you know, so dude, um, here's my paper. And I'm, you know, it's like, oh my God. Um, but you know, again, when you've got a gazillion dollars, um, people say, right. It's, you know, it's like that twilight zone. It's good what you did. It's good. Anthony. Don't cornfield me, man. <laughs> right. Jesus. 
Well, Tom Nichols, thank you, my friend, for coming on the Enemies List. As always, folks, you can follow Tom uh, at The Atlantic, and you can also get him online at various platforms at, at Radio Free Tom. He is a great follow, and I highly recommend him. He is one of the smartest thinkers out there, and I am so delighted you came on the show today, my friend. Let's have you back soon. Okay, Rick. Thanks for having me, man. Thanks, Tom. Well, folks, I'm going to keep on this until we figure it the hell out. But listen, if you're drawing swastikas in dorms, if you're on campuses in America saying that you stand in solidarity with your Hamas brothers and their martyrdom, if you're chasing Jewish students through libraries, if you're talking about the Jewish problem in academia, if you're conflating the Jewish state, the formation of the Jewish state in the wake of the Holocaust with Hamas being allowed to, I don't know, cross a border and slaughter innocent women and children, then you are on the enemies list. You are on the deepest, deepest, darkest recesses of the enemies list. This is a fundamental promise that the civilized world made after the end of World War II and after the Holocaust. All of us said the words, never again. What part of never do you people not understand? And I am criticizing right now people on the far left and the far right. There are people on the far right in Georgia who put up a Heil Hitler banner over I-75 yesterday. Fuck all of y'all. These pro-Hamas students that are threatening Jewish kids in colleges across the country, including at Columbia today. Fuck all of y'all. You're all on the enemies list. Folks, I'm not a Jew. I'm not Jewish. But I understand history, and I understand the signs and the portents and the omens we are seeing right now. And the normalization of anti-Semitism is growing and growing fast in this country, and we better be alert to it or we will have a moral failing that will rival nothing else you've ever seen before. Thanks, folks. Thanks again for listening to The Enemies List. If you have any comments, questions, or if there's someone you'd like to hear on the podcast, hit me up on Twitter at the Rick Wilson. Thanks again for the wonderful support you've shown the pod. We're growing fast. It really helps if you will share this with your friends, your family, and anyone else who, like us, is trying to save democracy. While you're at it, if you could rate and review the podcast, I would be very much appreciative. I know this is the sort of thing you've heard a billion times. Please rate, review, like, blah, blah, blah. But you need to do it. It really does help us a lot. We are slaves to the algorithm, my friends. And if you do this, it will help get the pod out further. Anyway, thanks again for listening. I'll see you next time. And remember, whatever you do, stay off the list. Stay off the list.